Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is William Anthony Hay, Associate Professor of History at Mississippi State University and author of Lord Liverpool, A Political Life, which is the subject of our conversation. Will, thanks for joining us on Historically Thinking. Thank you. Um, Now, I think the most recent podcast that's dropped, uh, listeners will have been treated to a discussion of the political culture of blue-collar Philadelphia in the 1960s and 70s, represented in part by the figure of Frank Rizzo. Um, And it's hard to think of a more different white male English-speaking politician uh, from Frank Rizzo than Robert Banks Jenkinson, the second Earl of Liverpool. Uh, But while our last discussion was really about political culture, Rizzo was only a vehicle uh, for the hopes, aspirations, fear, anger of that political culture. Um, This is an unabashed political biography, and uh, we'll get to that as a type of historical thinking, that genre, and um, how dare you write such a thing in this day and age, um, and why you have not been, I don't know, interned in an oubliette or something like that. Uh, but let's begin with a brief description of Liverpool and his life and importance. Well, Lord Liverpool bridged the 18th century, the, the age of Lord North and George III and William Pitt the Younger, with a much later world after his death of Queen Victoria. And so the 18th century mercantilist world of, to think in, in much broader terms, to the laissez-faire night watchman state of small government Victorian, Victorian Britain and the Victorian British Empire. Uh, he was born in 1770. He died in 1828. His formative experiences reflected an earlier period. And indeed, the time of his, uh, his father's career, uh, his father uh, rose politically during the 1760s before Liverpool was born, but Liverpool was able to adapt. And I think the key st- part of Liverpool's story was his ability to bridge uh, one generation to the next. Uh, another historian, Norman Gash, who uh, made his career writing about Sir Robert Peel, uh, pointed out that Liverpool laid a lasting foundation, set out a line of policy that guided Peel and later successors. And in doing that, Liverpool drew heavily on his own experiences, his father's guidance, and defending the 18th century British constitution. It's worth noting that only Sir Robert Peel and William Pitt the Younger matched Liverpool's nearly 15 years in office as prime minister. And after the 1832 Reform Act, uh, which changed the electoral system, it became a lot harder to stay in office for that long. But still, even before then, even before those changes, only two men, one, uh, the man who essentially created the office of prime minister, Walpole, and then Pitt, um, who was a major transitional figure after the War of American Independence, uh, outlasted Liverpool in office. So that raises a lot of questions. How how, and why was Liverpool effective? And of course, why has Liverpool after 18, uh, 1832 and some of the changes been largely forgotten? Mm-hmm. He managed Britain's difficult pas- uh, 
passage through a very turbulent era as marked by war, the uh, 20-something year war against revolutionary Napoleonic France, and then the peacetime adjustment of the difficulties of going from a wartime economy with its disruptions to the new normal of a peacetime economy. And in a sense, those have parallels to transitions, one might say, after the Cold War mm -hmm. in, uh, in more recent decades. Um, Liverpool, when I just to throw out a point uh, mm -hmm. a contemporary point, when Margaret Thatcher died, uh, one the obituary in the New York Times by uh, I think a philosopher uh, Grayling um, said linked Thatcher to Liverpool because an earlier biography, a short biography of Liverpool's career in the 1980s, had been uh, Thatcher's summer reading. And uh, this real attack on Thatcher is just a, not just a bad prime minister, but a bad person links to Liverpool in a kind of black legend of oppression and repression in the post uh, Waterloo era. And it's all of this was completely wrong. But it's interesting to see how reputations get framed. Mm -hmm. In fact, Liverpool was the architect of what became known as liberal Toryism, of adapting the system to accommodate change. And that's much of his lasting legacy. It is interesting to see the way that he becomes, well, we now think of Eminem Burke as, um, as a conservative um, in the yep. sort of modern Anglo-American tradition. Of course, Liverpool thought of him as a Whig, as, uh, as on the other, an opposite political party, um, with measures such as Catholic, well, I, I, Burke was a Catholic, was for Catholic emancipation, was he not? Um, yes, indeed. And um, Liverpool was very much not. And yet he continues to, to direct steer his party towards and ever more towards Burkeanism as it then was. Um, by, the end of his, by the end of his life, Liverpool served decisively doing that. Uh, and you, as you've already alluded to, and you see Peel as Liverpool's heir in that project. Yes, in many ways, Peel was Liverpool's less effective heir in managing, uh, in adapting institutions and really adapting political culture to accommodate new interests and to respond to public opinion. Uh, part of responding to public opinion was uh, finding ways to do two things. One is to show that the government could govern effectively, manage public business and manage the budget and particularly public finances and also limit and reduce burdens on the larger population. Most people in England, most certainly men, it was a, and suffrage was limited to men, uh, most men did not vote, were not eligible to vote. There's a property qualification for voting. And so, in Liverpool's own lifetime, there was also a religious test for voting. So, so what's the, uh, by the way, just to, one of the ways to yep. set people up with the things that they don't probably are shocked to discover about 18th century and 19th century English politics. What is the percentage of male men of, of men that can vote? It's, I don't have an exact percentage, but it's a strikingly small number. Yeah. And the famous, one black, of the, the things, famous black adder terms, you know, Manchester population, 60,000 yep. electoral roll three. Um, that's not, yes. that actually is kind of true for Manchester. Um, at the time, but yeah, well, for a lot of places, yeah. one of the since you bring up Manchester, one of the phenomena during Liverpool's life and career, many uh, 
it's not just how many people had the vote, how many men had the vote, mm -hmm. but also where were parliamentary seats. The structure of parliamentary representation largely reflected uh, two centuries before. So some areas had lost population mm -hmm. because people move around and so forth. Other areas had gained population. So you had major cities, Leeds in, uh, in Yorkshire, Manchester in Lancashire, which didn't have their own representation. They could vote, vote those eligible to vote could vote for the county, or could, could vote to elect a member of parliament for, the, for their county, but those specific towns, cities really, did not have direct representation. The idea was that everybody is represented virtually, mm -hmm. that even if you don't have your own member of parliament, parliament represents the, uh, the community of the realm, represents the country as a whole, as MPs are obliged to account for um, the interests of the whole, not simply their own constituents, but the interests of the whole country. Yes. Uh, and this, is, of course, is a great point of contention during the American Revolution, precisely that point. It, exactly um, that point. And Burke, who supported the Americans, disagreed on that, that point. Yeah. He did not think that a member of parliament was simply a delegate. Uh, one of the arguments of Liverpool's era was that people, uh, that people were represented, or at least interests were represented, that members of parliament would represent commercial interests, uh, the shipping interests, the woolen manufacturing, uh, iron makers, different economic sectors, as well as agriculture, uh, as well as uh, social orders and social ranks and regions of the realm, so that the, this patchwork and in many ways odd system of representation, which is not at all rational, mm. actually was representative. But and it was more representative than something rationally constructed. That that is Liverpool's contention, or his. That yes, that's Liverpool's argument. He makes a, he made a point in a speech opposing parliamentary reform that well, we should first think about uh, what kind of parliament we want before we see who votes for members of parliament and who sits in parliament hmm. that that was his thought how do you best represent the interests and opinions of the whole realm now i've wandered a little bit away from where i meant to go um we should probably yeah. be, before we get into these um uh, sort of the, the connection of a high political philosophy and high politics um yeah. i should probably before we move on to that can you describe Liverpool as a, as a character, as a personality, and how that sort of changes? As a personality, yeah. mm -hmm. yes. Liverpool was not a charismatic man. He's probably the least charismatic public figure. If you have in your mind the image of a democratic politician, or even a somewhat pre-democratic politician, or if you have in your mind the image of a courtier in uh, old regime Europe, Liverpool isn't going to fit that. He is not charismatic. He's not a force. He's not a, a forceful personality. His one public skill was oratory. He was a very good parliamentary speaker. But as a personality, he was shy. He was awkward. Uh, he was a bit unkempt. Uh, one of the wife of one of his uh, contemporaries, in fact, a member of his government, described a portrait of Liverpool as, ca as capturing his open and kindly features and also this sort of unkempt, shambling manner about him. Hmm. Uh, he was very clear in spo the spoken word and the written word, but he was not someone who could dominate a room as a charismatic figure would, nor was he somebody, for example, Lord North, would use wit and humor to deflect opposition. 
Uh, he would crack jokes at his own expense. Liverpool didn't have that capacity. He wasn't a man who had charm to uh, gain support. He was an exceptionally collegial politician, and he was an exceptionally loyal man and friendly with colleagues. Uh, he's been described as, uh, by earlier historians and earlier biographers as somebody, well, he allowed his good nature, that was his asset. Liverpool would often fly off the handle at people, and uh, he took offense at others as much as he, uh, and he often gave offense. So it wasn't charm that got him through. It was a set of political skills. It was a set of knowledge that he knew every department better than the people running the department. And the fact that he had the trust of his colleagues and the respect of a segment of what I call conservative opinion in the country, particularly opinion associated with the Church of England. And that gave him a flexibility as prime minister that made him extremely effective. So his formative experiences, um, first of all, above all, um, was his father. Um, you quote someone saying that um, even in the 1820s, the person that Liverpool quotes the most, he said, this person writes, is his father. Um, so what, how, and I believe Liverpool was his father's only son. Um, yeah. Well, no. So, only son of a first marriage. Okay. The elder Jenkinson married again. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's worth pointing out at this stage, Liverpool himself married twice mm -hmm. and his marriage was a love match. Uh, his father opposed the marriage at first because he wanted his son to either marry an heiress or wait until he was established. This was the one time Liverpool stood up and clashed with his father. It ended up that both the prime minister and the king took young, the future Lord Liverpool's side and helped mend fences. And Liverpool married Louisa, uh, Louisa Harvey, and they had a deeply devoted marriage. They didn't have children, and then Liverpool, after his first wife death, first wife's death, remarried a friend of hers. He was very reliant on female emotional support, hmm. but he didn't have children, and he had a younger brother who inherited the title as third Earl of Liverpool. Mm -hmm. But uh, but our Liverpool did not have, uh, he didn't have children of his own, which is, a, I think, a disappointment to the couple. Mm -hmm. They were so close that there's really not much correspondence between them because they were inseparable. Huh. But uh, let me talk a bit about Charles Jenkins and his father, who raised Liverpool to be prime minister. Yeah, it's and, really quite extraordinary uh, the way he crafted his son's life in order to do to, to that. He crafted and, his early education. And if you go back and read the letters between father and son, even as a very a young boy at preparatory school and then at public school, uh, Liverpool attended his father's school charter house and then went on to it, uh, Christchurch College, Oxford, a different college that his father thought was uh, more rigorous academically and better suited to training a young man for public life. Uh, his father is giving him a lot of sharp guidance and young Liverpool is very, the future Earl of Liverpool, I should say, young Robert Banks Jenkinson is very devoted. And those in the family circle recognize that he's a very uh, eager to please. He's very loyal, but he's a very firm young, young, ma young man, he, in many ways, a firm child. Uh, there's a, there's an incident where a highwayman, uh, he's coming home from school at Charterhouse, and a highwayman stops the coach and robs uh, young Jenkinson of his watch. And later on, in open court, Jenkinson gives evidence and stood up to the, seeing the highwayman again. It's interesting that Jenkinson said, I didn't see his face, so I couldn't swear to it. So he's 
very exact, <laughs> but he's not at all fearful. And that was characteristic. How old was he at um, the time? Oh, he would have been a teenager, uh -huh. mid, mid teens. So very, even at a young age, he, he had a, had a firmness and strength. Um, uh, he was someone, I mean, just to, another point of personality, he was someone who was often, young children are often credulous, right? Mm -hmm. You say something and they take it literally. And he carried this on uh, as a teenager and as a young man and was often the subject of teasing by friends. Uh, and there's a famous incident with one of his friends and colleagues, George Canning. Uh, they would be what today you'd call, or the teenagers of today would call frenemies at times. And Canning mercilessly teased Liverpool, and Liverpool breaks down in tears. And this is when he's uh, a young politician in the House of Commons hmm. uh, and runs out of a dinner party. And so this emotional level of Liverpool, on one, at one, on one level, I should say, Liverpool is very calm, very firm, uh, ha is able to speak clearly and, and face crisis effectively. On another level, he's very vulnerable and, and subject to swings of emotion. Hmm. It's a fascinating dynamic. You, um, at Oxford, he was a very good scholar, and you say later yeah. that one of his only, I think, unachieved ambitions in life was to be chancellor of Oxford, and he was crestfallen and not being elected to that position. Um, he actually withdrew he from did that okay. election. After he withdrew from the election because the, uh, what we say, the Tory vote, the government vote in that election is divided. And the, uh, the Whigs of Oxford had united behind uh, Lord Grenville, William Wyndham, uh, Baron Grenville. And rather than, rather than seeing his side lose, Liverpool pulled back his pretensions. Unfortunately, two Tories still ran, split the vote, and Wyndham got elected, or rather, Grenville got elected. Uh, but it wasn't Liverpool himself who, who faced the loss. But yeah, Oxford was an important influence on Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And uh, that points to some some earlier trends that, uh, if I may, I might bring out. Sure, something. go on. Um, and it ties in also with Liverpool's family background. Uh, Liverpool's, uh, his father had attended Oxford. Uh, the family, the Jenkinson family, were gentry from Oxfordshire, the county around Oxford. And uh, there's a Tory tradition in the family uh, and a high church tradition. The high, ch the high churchmen were members of the Church of England, typically royalists. High churchmen emphasized the parts of the Church of England that were not Calvinist. And Liverpool comes out of, is deeply influenced by that tradition. Uh, Oxford was a hotbed of Toryism, even when Tories were in opposition over much of the 18th century. So it's interesting to see that theme in Liverpool's uh, life. Mm -hmm. uh, his father entered public life by switching from the Tory side to the Whig side, uh, because there was really no hope for office and for a profitable political career by saying, I'm a Tory and standing on that side. Uh, but although Charles Jenkinson, who later became the first Earl of Liverpool, switched parties, he carried a lot of his principles with him and rose in public life during the early the, the 1760s, the first decade of George III's reign. And that became a period where uh, Tory ideas, though not a Tory quote-unquote party, merged back into public life, even where politicians called themselves Whigs. Mm -hmm. It's a very confusing, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. We'll get to it's, that because it's bit. a it's extraordinarily confusing for the modern 
a reader who is very used to cut and dried political parties. Uh, that is not the way things work in the 18th century in America or Britain, for that matter. No, uh, and there are a lot. We'll get to this in a minute, but there are a lot of breadcrumb trails you can follow, and the difficult task of tracing what I call tracing political genealogies. Yeah, yeah. So Oxford's important. Um, he and George Canning is his uh, his a fellow member of Christ Church. Um, yeah, is his they, lifelong they fr met. friend of me. Yeah. Yes. Um, they, yes, they. Yes. Go on. They had some similarities. Both Canning and Liverpool, they, when they met, they became fast friends. And at Oxford, they were members of a debating club together. And Canning saw himself as, as a future Whig pitted against Liverpool, who he saw as a future, as a future politician on the government side, on, the, on what would be the Tory side. Um, Canning had lost his father at a very early age and was raised by a mother who remarried. She went, became an actress, uh, went into a career that on the stage that was barely differentiated from prostitution in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. And a family member rescued Canning essentially and uh, put him through Eton College and then from, paid for his education. Liverpool, it's worth noting, uh, and we hinted at this in a few minutes ago. Liverpool's mother died right after he was born, not quite in childbirth, but soon after Liverpool was born. And uh, his mother's death uh, almost broke his father. Uh, the elder Jenkinson, Charles Jenkinson, even though he's an ambitious man who married uh, with uh, one eye on career and interest, they truly had an affectionate relationship and losing his young wife really almost broke the spirit of the elder Jenkinson and the young Jenkinson grew up without a mother and we've talked about how his father guided his life but also female company became very important uh, his uh, grandmother filled a gap uh, the mother of uh, another family member and other women would, would fill a function but he was very much in a male-dominated world and felt the lack of but I think one of the things might have drawn drawn Canning and Liverpool together was the experience of not having a parent hmm. at that growing up. He does very well at Oxford, as I said. Um, he takes the grand tour. You point out that he is obviously a uh, clue to his personality. Unlike nearly every other young English aristocrat sent to the continent, he only takes a servant. He doesn't have someone to act as his custodian, keep him out of the brothels. Um, and while he's in Paris, very formative for him, he sees the fall of the Bastille on July 14th, 1789. Um, describe that, if you would. Well, yes. Liverpool, in later speeches um, about violent unrest and street protests around the, uh, the Peterloo massacre in 1819, Liverpool would actually mention in Parliament, look, I was there, I saw what a violent mob, what a crowd can do. Liverpool's letters don't give a blow-by-blow -blow description of exactly what he saw. Uh, other historians have written about that day and the fact that the garrison had surrendered and then was murdered in cold blood with a butcher's apprentice actually cutting off the head of uh, the governor of the Bastille. But seeing violence and seeing order break down in France really shaped how Liverpool understood public life. Uh, he assimilated what he saw in the context of reading about 
religious wars of the early modern period, both the English civil wars of Cavalier and Roundheads that ended up with Charles I's execution, and then the French wars of religion earlier on uh, that had seen amazing strife in France, really the greatest wave of violence before the French Revolution. And that shaped Liverpool's view of public order, the violence of crowds. Um, Liverpool's letters to his father's father from Paris during that period around the fall of the Bastille, it's worth noting how he describes the, the high politics of the day and says that many people in France, many of the noblesse and many of the property classes would give two thirds of what they owned or, or three fifths of what they owned simply to keep the rest. A growing sense of fear and unease. Uh, and Liverpool saw that, described it, and it shaped how he understood the world. It's one of the differences between Liverpool and Canning, and also Lord Castlereagh, Liverpool's friend and colleague later on, is that from the beginning, Liverpool was sympathetic to the royalist side. Hmm. Not in a romantic way, but uh, when he was in Paris, he was a guest of a leading royalist figure. and He spent most of his time among French society rather than among Englishmen, because that's why he was there, to learn French culture, French manners, the French language. Later on, when he traveled in Italy, he had introductions to uh, French officials and French figures there, French society. So he very much understood not the revolutionary French, but the, uh, the French old regime and the French emigre view of the world and indeed their sense of dispossession, their sense of horror at what was unfolding in their country. Um, there's a great line by, I think it was Thomas Jefferson, who, was, who had been in France and who was famously sympathetic to the French Revolution. Jefferson described France at that time as a, pla as a place where man was as wolf to man. Hmm. And it's interesting that Jefferson took one reading of that phenomenon, Liverpool took a very different reading about the importance of order and ordered liberty because Liverpool believed that order was essential to protect liberty. Mm -hmm. He um, returns to England and how soon does he attain political office? Uh, how, how soon does he enter parliament? What age? A 20, well, he, he was actually elected before he formally came of age. It was not <laughs> uncommon for young men uh, to be elected before they could take the oath. You mm -hmm. had to be 21 of, of majority, back then it was 821, before you could take the oath. Liverpool was in Paris in 1789, uh, studying there. He then returned to Oxford, and after finishing his studies, he took a further tour. And it's during that further tour of France, and then Italy, and the Low Countries, that's when he, uh, he was elected in absentia. Uh, for a borough in uh, a, a government treasury borough, in fact, uh, which would bring him into closer connection with William Pitt the Younger, the Prime Minister. And after his uh, his grand tour, and after his birthday, and he reached his majority, he came back and took the oaths and spoke in the House of Commons. So he's twenty one. He's in the House of Commons. He's given his first speech. Um, how soon does he enter into office? And, and explain what that means um, at the time. Entering into office. Uh, he took on a junior office uh, quite early on at the India Board, at the, the Board of Control for India. And this was the government board overseeing the British East India Company. Uh, and that provided him a salary. And I think more importantly, being on the India Board 
gave him a lot of exposure to a whole range of government business, except for the chairman of the board, Henry Dundas, who later becomes Lord Melville. Uh, other than Dundas and Pitt, Liverpool was recorded at being more of the meetings of the board than any other member of the board. So he was it was an early apprenticeship in public administration and public business and Indian affairs. Um, even before that, his maiden speech probably deserves a little attention. Sure. His first speech was the defense of the government on foreign policy. Hmm. There was a major debate uh, when uh, the opposition moved a, a censure on Pitt for uh, his policy uh, supporting the Ottoman Empire, supporting Turkey against Russia, the so-called Ochakov crisis over a fortress on the Black Sea littoral. And uh, Pitt's effort to block the, the Russians had failed. And it had been an effort to maintain a balance of power in Europe and keep the Russians from growing too strong. Liverpool steps forward in his first speech defending the government and making a major statement, defending the balance of power and saying, saying that Pitt was doing his best. Pitt's policy had been right. Even though it failed, it was, the, it was an attempt to uphold an important principle of balancing power in continental Europe so no European power got too strong to threaten British interests. It's interesting that someone so junior, a newcomer, making their first speech would be entrusted with such a responsibility. Mm -hmm. You've um, alluded to a couple things earlier that I want to focus yeah. on. Um, one is, is that uh, Liverpool always uh, was a defender of the 18th century constitution. Um, and second was that uh, you've alluded to the fact that after following the American crisis um, and following that uh, war with really the rest of the world and all the uh, almost all the other European powers that was part of the American war for independence, um, British politics is in crisis as well. Um, I think the role of the king uh, in parliament is in transition. I, I think I'm right in saying that in flux and that's, yeah. and that's part of the crisis. So first of all, what is the 18th century constitution? and that Liverpool was defending. And what is the nature of that crisis in the 1780s? And the, the 18th century con constitution in England, and it really, it really originated earlier on. It's the idea of shared sovereignty. That it's the king in parliament, that the, the estates of the realm, crown, lords, and commons, represent the community of the realm as a whole. And so sovereignty is not just vested in the person of the king, and it certainly isn't vested in majority opinion or anything like democracy, but rather a balance represented in Parliament with the king, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons. And that is uh, a constitution that emerges after the restoration of Charles II, uh, the Glorious Revolution in 1688, and then the Hanoverian Accession in 1815 and it's it's designed to uphold parliamentary authority but also um but also the church of england by law established and the crown itself so it's 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 a partnership between king and subjects and it's rooted in ideas of balance that derive from aristotelian political thought uh through polybius and cicero uh, and their accounts of the Roman constitution, the idea of balancing executive authority represented by a king with uh, aristocratic power and with the interests of the, the people as a whole, not necessarily the views uh, 
tallied by head of the people as a whole, but the interest of the people as, the, uh, as a whole. And the balanced constitution in England also had a role for the Church of England by law established, uh, a national church encompassing the majority of English Christians, but also allowed for uh, toleration of religious practice and religious belief outside the Church of England. So one could be a dissenting Protestant, a Protestant nonconformist who did not follow the Church of England. One could be Catholic. Uh, Jews had returned to England in the mid um, 17th century. So one could be a religious believer outside the church, but the church itself was a pillar of temporal authority and Liverpool defended it as such. And it was part of that 18th century constitution that secured peace uh, by preventing religious strife and by promoting what Liverpool and others would describe as the purest form of Christianity, while nevertheless tolerating other forms of belief and practice. Hmm. So what is the, the part of this crisis over, um, over the 18th, in a way then, um, the American Revolution is one of these series of arguments over the nature of the 18th century, of the 18th century British Constitution. Um, in some ways, a culmination of those things. Uh, we and it helps if we think of the American colonists as actually British colonists um, in that way. Um, and in fact, they swing back and forth. Um, at one point, grasping at straws, they're even imagining the king over Parliament uh, to free them from what they see as parliamentary dictatorship. Um, but after the war, um, George the Third is seen. I believe I'm correct in saying has seen as over has overstretched his um overplayed his hand in terms of his attempt to control parliament is that correct is that part of the crisis well the crisis in the uh in the 1780s emerges from uh a coalition government led by charles james fox and lord north uh, their effort to storm the closet, it was known, to force themselves into power, essentially compel the king to accept them and their parties as ministers. Uh, the Duke of Portland was prime minister during what was called the Fox North Coalition, but the real people in charge are Fox, uh, the leader of the Rockingham, what had been the Rockingham Whigs, and Lord North, who had been an earlier prime minister under George III, that George III uh, to whom George III felt particular loyalty. They had been a close, they'd become friends, and they cooperated very closely. And Fox, uh, was, decided, of, Fox was decidedly not the king's friend. Um, was decidedly not the king's friend and the king's choice at this point. Yeah. Part of the, the issue with the Fox North Coalition was men who had, who had disagreed on every policy issue. I mean, imagine Ted Cruz and Bernie Sanders yeah, coming together. That's exactly <laughs> like it. Uh, it, it. It's really people who had differed on every public issue were now united in the government, and that was seen as as dishonest. An unholy and alliance, they were united. Yeah. They were united, and having joined together, that they had a majority in the House of Commons, and they said, "We're the only government you can have," and pushed themselves on the king as an administration, and their majority in the House of Commons did not reflect public opinion as a whole, or the House of Lords, certainly, or the wishes of the king. Let me step back without sure. getting into the 
too much of the weeds or chasing rabbits down holes. But you made a good point about uh, the American Revolution as a crisis of parliamentary sovereignty and the colonists rejecting parliamentary sovereignty in a way that George III couldn't accept. And the king had said, I am fighting the war of the legislature. Mm -hmm. yep. the, cri the crisis of the 1750s reflects a much earlier turbulence on George III's accession. Mm -hmm. When George III became king, he broke with the practice of his grandfather, who's George II, the crown skipped a generation, and George I. And he uh, wanted to rule as king uh, independent of party. Mm -hmm. And that change, along with changes in parties, and this is getting to some other issues we can discuss later, produced a fragmented politics in the 1750s and then in the 1760s. It's at the end of the 1760s that uh, Lord North is able to bring some stability to English politics by forming a government that can hold majorities in the House of Commons, manages finances, manages public business effectively, has support in the country, and then it hits a wall called the American crisis. Mm -hmm. And losing that, losing that war leads North to, re to resign. And North had wanted to leave office. The king insisted, well, who else will, will I find if you re resign? The, George III had kept him in, really, against North's wishes. When North resigned and when um, the American war was effectively lost after, in America at least, after Yorktown, um, the king accepted a government under Lord Rockingham, the Whig leader he'd opposed. Rockingham died, and that fragment, that brought that government down. And it was back to the fragmented administrations of the 1760s. So. The union of, of North and Fox to, to push themselves on the king with a majority in the House of Commons, that created a crisis. The king did not want them, did not want them in power, but for a time he didn't have an alternative. William Pitt the Younger, the heir and the son of the elder Pitt, who had been the great commoner before the elder Pitt took the title Earl of Chatham, the elder Pitt had been a great spokesman as an independent Whig for mercantile interests, for uh, a more public politics. His son, whom Burke described as not a chip off the old block, but the block itself, <laughs> his son, Pitt the Younger, becomes a vehicle for the king and for conservative groups, as well as the younger Pitt himself, to take office as the youngest prime minister and, and he bring down the Fox North coalition. And how old is he? Because this is always, always stunning. It's stunning. Pitt was 24. Yeah. So this 24-year-old, so, um, this child, <laughs> um, basically turns out I mean, to Frank, be one of the great political geniuses. Yeah. And one of the great political geniuses of, I think it's safe to say, of English history, who's able to um, bring things under into a more steady train of events and basically master the government until his death. He is. Um, well, I would, let me qualify that slightly. Yeah. Yes. Pitt is uh, – the younger Pitt makes me wonder what I was doing with myself I and know. my teens and twelve. It 20s. really is awful. Uh, it's amazing. that, And in fact, he – before the formation of the Fox North Coalition, he had turned down overtures that he would take office as prime minister. But when the king said that uh, – the the king brought down the government over a proposal for in for the management of the East India Company. 
and then stepped forward. And he not only took office, but he's held into office by a coalition of, um, of politicians and of people, including um, including Liverpool's father, Charles Jenkinson. And that gives the younger Pitt some breathing room. Pitt wins a parliamentary election. The, this parliamentary election that follows uh, Pitt coming to office, and he actually wins an election where he's able to command a majority in the House of Commons. And it was a political crisis where public opinion supported Pitt and the King more than Charles James Fox and Lord North and what became the opposition. Once he's in power and has a majority and is able to move business forward, the younger Pitt focused on administrative reform, focused on getting public finances in order, and he, his efforts actually rebuild Britain's position in Europe and more broadly. By 1789, Britain had recovered from the defeat in America, and by 1789, Britain's the most stable and secure, financially stable country in Europe, that where elsewhere there's a dread of revolution or a dread of public affairs. Britain has its finances in order. Uh, politics have been stabilized. Uh, Britain had secured an advantageous overseas position. Things went really well. That gave, along with the backing of George III, that gave Pitt a very, very strong position that he was able to use to dominate politics as the Whig Party, uh, led by Fox and uh, Edmund Burke, uh, pulled itself apart after mm -hmm. the French Revolution. Very briskly, um, this obviously then comes the great cataclysm in France and then across Europe of the Revolutionary Wars. Uh, I think it, it's safe to say that Pitt is dragged somewhat unwillingly finally to deciding that he must, um, Britain must participate in, in the fight against revolutionary France. Um, yes. That begins in 1793. Um, I want to gallop over that uh because over this 25 year long conflict really the last yeah. uh immense of the of, of really a hundred the second hundred years war you might say between yes. britain and france um because i i find um your chapters on liverpool's um prime uh, premiership after the war to be really fascinating i want to get to that in the time we have remaining so very briskly, um, if we can, let's gallop over the entire sort of Iliad of uh, English history here of uh, of Liverpool's service in during the Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. It is like the Iliad. Liverpool, uh, you mentioned Liverpool holding office. He was master of the mint in the late 1790s. But uh, when Pitt resigned, he became foreign secretary and negotiated the peace of Amiens with Napoleonic France. The brief attempt at a peace with France mm -hmm. uh, before defeating France in 1750. He was uh, foreign secretary. Then he became home secretary involved for the, for the full range of domestic business. At the same time, Liverpool was leader of the House of Lords, managing debates and managing uh, legislation in the upper house for uh, not just Pitt, but for, uh, but for, for really four prime ministers, mm -hmm. uh, Henry Addington, Pitt, uh, the Duke of Portland, and then Spencer Percival. What does it mean? Became, what, what does it mean to manage sort of the the house um, if, when you're doing that? Just briefly, what does it mean? What does that mean? That's an important question in both the Commons and in the Lords, and usually, in, in, and usually, which somebody has to be responsible for uh, leading debates 
and managing affairs for the government, essentially scheduling debates, mm -hmm. defending measures over the whole range of policy. If the prime minister is a peer, Lord Liverpool, he does that in the House in the House of Lords. If the prime minister is a commoner, uh, Pitt and then Spencer Percival, then he does that in the House of Commons. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, whichever house the prime minister doesn't, whichever house in which the prime minister doesn't sit, there's a leadership gap. Somebody has to fill that role. Liverpool filled that role really for much of his career before becoming prime minister while having big jobs as foreign secretary, home secretary, and war secretary. He's managing the war against uh, Napoleon and uh, guiding, developing strategy, assisting uh, Wellington in the Peninsula War, uh, leading Britain through that eventual end game from 1812 through uh, 1815 and the final end to what you've, I think, quite rightly described as the Second Hundred Years' War. The, um, and it's quite extraordinary, as, as War Secretary, uh, Wellington's actually involved as Commander-in-Chief in the Peninsula with, I think, six different departments of state. Um, the War Secretary is just one of them. But as you said earlier, Liverpool knows everyone's business uh, and every other cabinet colleague's business better than they. I think that's one of the reasons for Wellington's success is that he has Liverpool to direct all that, uh, what's, what's necess what Wellington needs from London. Liverpool served a vital coordinating function that he could coordinate the work of various departments, act as a buffer between Wellington, who himself would become quite angry and quite frustrated with the way the system worked or often didn't. He was able to buffer Wellington and the rest of the cabinet, Wellington and other departments, and make sure that Wellington, if he didn't, if Wellington didn't get everything he wanted, and he didn't, at least get as much as he needed. The system didn't have to work perfectly. It worked well enough to facilitate uh, Wellington's strategy, and it was a strategy developed with Liverpool. And I think very importantly, Liverpool kept the cabinet and the king, Prince Regent on side, the king and the Prince Regent on side, to say that this is where Britain's war effort would be focused. Britain's at, Britain Britain focused its efforts on Spain and Portugal, on the peninsula, and Liverpool assured Wellington, look, we're not going to go off and do something else. We're not going to take away support from you to manage to try some different strategy. We're going to focus here and give you what you need, or at least what we can provide, as much as we can provide of what you need to, to wage war effectively. And that strategy worked. It wasn't so much, and this is just a very quick point, it wasn't so much that Wellington defeated the French in the peninsula as the fact that Wellington was a constant drain on the French in the peninsula. And when Napoleon turned east to Russia, that gave Wellington the chance to take the initiative and overthrow the French satellite state in Spain. Mm -hmm. So 1812, uh, the only prime minister, uh, Spencer Percival, uh, has the unfortunate distinction of being the only British prime minister to be assassinated. And uh, Liverpool becomes prime minister. Um, and so this shy, stiff, intellectual, man of business, passionate lover of his wife is now the sort of director of British politics. Um, he sees things through to uh, the peace uh, in 18, the, that comes after Waterloo. And then in, in many ways, uh, it's the most fascinating part of the story because his real work begins. There's a tremendous, obviously, for obvious reasons, there is an immense war exhaustion. 
the economy has completely been oriented towards waging war with France. Uh, and now the, the, even the act of decommissioning the vast Royal Navy is cost money. Um, and yet there is uh, increasing radicalism in politics. And he has a prince regent who is basically uh, emotionally is about 11 years old, who wants a, di- <laughs> wants a divorce. And he has to, yeah. sk- and he has a very weak cabinet, or at least a, a cabinet, a collection of individuals who are not up to his own personal standard. And he has to steer all of this together. He does. Well, let me say something about the cabinet, particularly about uh, Lord Castlereagh. Castlereagh's foreign secretary and leader of the House of Commons. This would be like combining the job secretary of state mm-hmm. with, uh, with speaker of the House of Representatives, with all of that implies. Mm-hmm. And Castlereagh was a man who was very good in personal interactions. He was a gifted diplomat, and that was his great ability, not just with kings and princes and statesmen of Europe, but he was someone who could go into a public meeting or a small meeting and interact with the humbler sort of people. He could get he was charming and, and personable in a way Liverpool himself wasn't. What Castlereagh could not do very well is speak in public. Yeah, he, 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 Castlereagh. I, I don't think this this uh, has ne- this the sort of this comparison has never been made before. But he reminds me of sort of the George W. Bush of the Napoleonic area era. Very oh, he was uh, v- very very good at one on one interaction. Um, can make you believe anything, but can't speak in public to save his life. During the debate over the income tax, or during eighteen sixteen. Uh, and not just the debate of the income tax, but the debate of the budget. Uh, Castlereagh remarked in the House of Commons about this ignorant impatience of taxation. And this was just the wrong thing to say. Uh, And Castlereagh did trip into these things. Uh, Hmm. Members of the opposition would sit there and uh, pass the time in debates by marking the the sort of the, the verbal infelicities that Castlereagh would make tripping over his own tongue in, in language. And so this was a terrible burden for Liverpool's government. He couldn't, he himself couldn't go to the Commons and make the case, but he didn't have effective speakers in the Commons who could do it for him. Mm-hmm. And that was a big problem. One of the reasons Liverpool, just a very, very, very quickly, Liverpool went to the House of Lords while his father was still alive under what's called a writ of acceleration because the government needed him and the Lords to manage debates there because it had a lack of debating talent and leadership in the Lords. That's the problem as Prime Minister he faced in the Commons for a long time until he brought back Canning and until he brought in Sir Robert Peel. It's a measure that um, he had this logical, orderly, tidy mind Mm -hmm. perfect for moving machinery along on rails. And at the same time, I think you quote Wellington as saying Liverpool was one of the only two people he knew uh, that he had experience of who knew what they were going to say before they stood up in the House of Commons or in the House of Lords. Um, Yeah, he had a real gift of speaking to the question, to the point, without committing the government on policy too far, responding to criticisms and showing that the government was aware of criticism and meeting the case making the government's case without saying anything stupid or inane. Um, which any uh, contemporary American realizes is a true gift. Uh, the question of taxation that you mentioned, um, what, describe this as the income tax which uh, or property tax. It's called various things. Um, it's hard. It's neither. <laughs> it's, it's, it's neither. It's, it's neither it's, and both. 
Um, but it's been used to fund the massive war effort. And Liverpool, very controversially, wants to keep it. Why? Why? Uh, to cover the expense of winding down the war. Uh, in many ways, uh, Liverpool, in another conversation this came up, Liverpool did, in terms of cutting government, what uh, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan only dreamt of, that he really did cut taxes, cut government very, very heavily. But why did he want to keep the income tax? Because Liverpool saw the income tax as the least painful way of bringing in revenue. The, that relying on the income tax would allow the government to lower taxes on consumption and therefore on the poor and reduce burdens on the economy while also paying off uh, high government borrowing so the rate of interest, the cost of borrowing money, as Liverpool put it, would come down. So business and agriculture, the landed interest, uh, farmers, the gentry, and merchants and manufacturers would then be able to borrow money at much more favorable rates. The burden on the poor would fall, and so the poor could consume more, and that would help the economy come back. But Liverpool walked into just a storm of opposition in 1816. The, uh, the Whigs, who had been highly unpopular during the war, the only way the Whigs had been able to make political headway was on two issues. One is scandal, personal political scandal. And we'll talk about the Prince Regent. I think you make that point very well. But also in economic affairs. And Charles Gray, Lord Gray, uh, in the House of Lords, who's one of the leading Whigs, and Henry Broom in the House of Commons, Gray said to Broom, why don't you gin up a campaign against the income tax? You have to do this because Broom was the master of getting local communities and the press uh, and provincial merchants, manufacturers, and interests, getting them wound up to put on pressure campaigns. The one defeat during the war came for the government came with the orders in council. These were commercial restrictions uh, mm -hmm. as part of economic warfare against Napoleonic France. And Liver Henry Broom blamed the, uh, the orders in council for an economic depression or an economic downturn. And that enabled him to mount a pressure campaign that forced Liverpool, when he came into office, to drop the orders in council. Gray said to Broom, let's do it again, only more. And that's what they did in 1816, is that they mounted a pressure campaign that hit some very, very tender points of public frustration with the cost of war, with public borrowing, the burden of taxation. The income tax, which was... Uh, often called the property tax, as you say. The income tax was a way for property. It was a tax on the earnings of property with professional activity. So your income, either from professional activity or the, uh, or, or the earnings from landed property, that those earnings could be taxed because in a war for properties, was said in the 1790s, property would have to pay its part. Over the long 18th century, most tax, the tax burden fell largely on consumption, on the mass of the, the mass of the politic the, the public t-tax for example the t-tax exactly and other taxes sometimes there were taxes that were a proxy for wealth a tax on servants a tax on windows a tax on uh powdered wigs for example it's much more efficient and effective to tax wealth mm -hmm. the tax income and that had financed an unprecedented effort it enabled britain to borrow 
and finance not only its own war effort, but the effort of its allies. Mm -hmm. But the war's over. We won. We, we, the allies, not just Britain, we and our allies inflicted an unprecedented defeat. Not only put the French king, Louis XVIII, back on the throne, stuck Liverpool in exile, not Liverpool, excuse me, Napoleon in exile in the South Atlantic. We won a complete victory. We ended the threat. So can't we go home now? Mm -hmm. And that was the thing. You couldn't just go home. The winding down expenses were difficult and paying off the debts accrued over the war. So that made the, uh, the six years or so, six plus years after, the, after Waterloo, the most difficult years of Liverpool's administration. And it shows the paradoxes of, of practical politics, of the yeah. terrible P alliteration, um, that um, the people that are going to be most resentful are precisely the, country, the county gentry. Yeah. that are the Tories and that are Liverpool's supporters um, uh, and voters <laughs> for that matter. I, I, I would some many of them were. Yeah. I would rephrase that slightly and say those who had political leverage, those who had the most effective political voice because they either could they voted for or sat in the House of Commons or or were the articulate classes able to influence the House of Commons, they're the ones who resent mm. the income taxes falls on them uh others whose voice was mainly in the form of public protest in the streets mm -hmm. uh they were more burdened by consumption tax exactly so they, they should be they should rejoice in liverpool's administration and yet we've got this growth of radical politics which is quite extraordinary it, it's sort of the thing that you know, Gilray and all the rest of the, the caricaturists are portraying in the 1790s, like sort of happening all over again. Yeah. Yes. I mean, this was a period of uh, this was a period of great social tension. Uh, I, you may be familiar with the economic concept of a scissors effect, that, you're, mm -hmm. that a scissors has two blades and one blade could be costs. The other blade could be earnings. Well, for the middling classes, the property classes, fall or, falling earnings and lower costs or rather falling falling earnings and higher costs after Waterloo sliced into them like a pair of scissors. Mm -hmm. For the mass of the population, for plebeian, ordinary Englishmen and women uh, who were wage earners, it was low earnings, low wages, and or unemployment combined with higher food prices and higher costs. Yeah. And that cut into them. And that's, be and, it's a, and that's because of ecological things. It's the year without a summer after the yeah. uh, eruption of Tambora. And I, I mean, this is, uh, despite the Industrial Revolution um, having moved along quite nicely since the 18th century, um, England still, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure a majority of the economy is still agrarian or agricultural. It's very heavily agrarian. Yeah. And uh, agrarian uh, farm employment is still very, very important. Right. In terms of numbers, particularly. And surplus um, labor is going to go, to, is, 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 is yeah. going to be sucked up by farm labor, um, tenant labor, all the rest of that stuff. Without it, you're going to have a large group of unemployed and homeless, really, wandering around the country. Yes. This is a, between over the first 50 years of the 19th century, from 1800, 1801 to about 1850, the English population doubles. Yeah. So there's a huge wave of population growth during this period. Um, there's also another pattern to keep in mind. That when business, when you have a business downturn, there are a few buffers in the system. You don't have uh, the kind of 
unemployed there was there were poor laws and there was unemployment poor relief but you don't have the kind of unemployment insurance and the kind of relief that uh that a, that keeps shops within a bound and you also don't have the pattern where even if orders drop businesses nowadays will keep people in work for a while mm -hmm. so it isn't an, the the shocks of of demand fluctuations aren't felt as immediately but back then orders fall off the factory closes so it sharpens the impact of a widely fluctuating economic cycle during a period of population growth during a period when soldiers are coming home and are being demobilized uh, many of the radicals uh, included former soldiers who mm -hmm. could train people to march and to drill one of the alarming things is when you had people parading in formation like soldiers who would clap their hands in formation uh, like soldiers discharging muskets. Mm -hmm. Well, that's intimidating. Mm -hmm. That is a, uh, you know, the power of the, of the crowd uh, and the power of a disciplined crowd. Uh, that, ha that, that's an that has an intimidating effect. And one of the focuses of radical politics, bizarrely enough, is the royal divorce. Um, yes. George, the future George IV, the Prince Regent, has since he, beginning of his regency, uh, when his father des descends into the last 10 years of his life and 10 years of his madness, um, really, uh, had been agitating occasionally for a divorce from his much hated wife. Um, and uh, he does so again after Waterloo. Uh, he does so again in 1820, uh, after his father's death, um, he gets quite agitated on the subject, um, and agitates Liverpool a great deal. And that, and, and really this agitates the entire, um, political culture. Why? It turns the country upside down. One of the things that Caroline of Brunswick does is the estranged wife of George III, which does two things. One, as the King's wife, she repeats a pattern that had been common. Uh, for the Hanoverians, where father and son clashing, uh, George the first or George the second and George the first, uh, George uh, the Prince Regent, the future George the third and uh, or the future George the fourth and George the third. You had the son establishing a political grouping around him, or at least being a focus for those opposed to the government of the day and, and disliking the king. Um, but she's not the heir to the throne. She's not the next in line to succession. She's the wife the king's trying to ditch. So she's building this court faction. She provides a focus for opposition. And she also becomes the nucleus for popular anger and resentment. Mm -hmm. uh, there's something romantic to contend for a queen, as uh, one observer comments. <laughs> so the people who are outraged and angry, those who have been left out of office and might see themselves, see, um, to see the heir to the throne as a way back in, she becomes a focus of discontent. And the formation of a queen's party in 1820 becomes very, very dangerous. Uh, let me say something about uh, the Queen Caroline's story and the Queen Caroline affair. Uh, this was truly a marriage from hell, and it, the problem, <laughs> it, it really it it is a, a disaster. I mean, there are many stories in history and contemporary and today of marriages that end badly, but this was went bad from, uh, badly this, from the start. This is really an epic. And they came to truly hate one another. It's one thing to to fall out and to separate, um, but they truly hated one another. And uh, they were estranged. This caused 
political trouble, uh, even in the first decade of the 19th century. And when Caroline went abroad after Waterloo um, and took lovers and it conducted a scandalous tour of North Africa and of the Holy Land God help us. And, uh, and travels around with her uh, Chamberlain, whose effect her, uh, her guy, her live-in uh, lover. Her, her steady, of, there are others. Her steady, there are yeah. others. And all of this starts floating around and coming back. And the and George, the Prince Regent is, uh, of course, we should note, um, in fairness to Caroline, hardly a model of marital fidelity himself. No, uh, uh, unsuccessful he, in, in establishing a legitimate heir. Um, but no, George the Fourth and Caroline they cohabited long enough to have one child. Yep, uh, Princess Charlotte. Charlotte died in childbirth. Charlotte was the heir to the throne. She quarrelled with her father, and she, Princess Charlotte was pro-Whig. She became a friend of Broome, a friend of Lord Grey, sought both of their advice against her father. Then when she died, George, uh, the Prince Regent, later George IV, does not have an heir. It's the, the, the line goes to his brothers. But he does have Caroline, and he, he dislikes her so much and is so angry with her that he wants a separation of the marriage. Liverpool and the cabinet, and not just Liverpool, but Lord Sidmouth, uh, formerly Henry Addington, who'd been prime minister at one point, Sidmouth, who's home secretary in Liverpool's government, Castlereagh as foreign secretary, Wellington joined the government as master of the ordinance. They all make the case to the Prince Regent, look, you know, this is only going to be a mess. This will be an embarrassment to you. Uh, the cabinet said you can't, by, the, by English law, get a divorce. Uh, at one point, the Prince Regent says, well, I'm going to go to Hanover and get a divorce there. Well, it wouldn't work in England. And so this resentment building when, excuse me a moment, <coughs> when George III died, and of course, George IV had effectively been king since 1811, but George III died in 1820, and there's much lamenting, uh, better to serve a king like George III than such living profligacy, mm. uh, Sidmouth remarked as his son. When George III died, that brought all sorts of issues into question. One of those issues was uh, the uh, essentially the stipend, the uh, financial settlement that had kept Caroline out of the country. <laughs> and uh, she comes back to claim her rights as queen. Mm -hmm. And what Liverpool and the cabinet, Liverpool throughout this has the firm support of his colleagues. He can't deal very well with George IV himself. They fall out. It's an epic falling out. Um, what Liverpool and his colleagues want to do is make a settlement with Caroline and have her stay outside of the country. She is financially supported. Just go away. Mm. And use a different title and don't bother us anymore. She's afraid she'll be cut off financially. And she also thinks of her pride, her rights as queen. I am the queen. I'm going to claim my rights. And that gives an opening for a whole crisis. Liverpool tries to negotiate a settlement with Broome. At the same time, the king keeps stamping his foot and saying, no, I want a divorce. A key step in this process that might be over, overlooked, but it's more important than you think, is when the king insists, George IV insists, that uh, Caroline be excluded from prayers for the royal family in the prayer book. 
And uh, one of uh, a junior minister who's in the government, not in the cabinet, uh, John Wilson Crocker remarks, well, if you can, if she's fit to be prayed for, she's fit to be received in company. And the king seizes onto this and it gives Liverpool quite literally fits of anguish and upset. And it frustrates the cabinet because, look, you're, you're poking the bear. You are provoking her. The attempt to negotiate a settlement failed. Broom, who is as crooked as a corkscrew, <laughs> is making promises that uh, his client will not need. And he's trying to make a deal. She rejects the deal. And then she comes to England. She crosses the channel against Broom's advice, arrives at Dover. And people in Dover chair her through the town. They take the horses out of her carriage and drag her carriage through the town just the way you would a, a victorious candidate mm -hmm. uh, for, in a parliamentary election. The Times speaks of uh, Caroline as being like uh, Henry VII. And William of Orange, only with not uh, only difference being that she arrives with outraged incident, innocence, mm -hmm. with outraged innocence rather than an army, and this detonates a whole crisis. People in Parliament wanted to go away. There's an episode where William Wilberforce, speaking for independent members of Parliament, though Wilberforce was sympathetic to Liverpool's government, uh, Wilberforce uh, tries to brings a, a motion by the House of Commons to please Queen Caroline make a deal. Let's let's find a settlement. And she rejects it. And so it goes to a trial before the House of Lords. We're going um, long over, okay. um, but uh, uh, so what? Uh, <laughs> if he, but it, we shouldn't uh, conclude without your mentioning Peterloo, which I'm not sure where this happened I, I, right now. I'm not sure where I'm a historian, so I'm very bad with dates. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure where this has happened in relation to this. It's all part of this ongoing this crisis that Liverpool is trying to surmount. It's uh, it's the storm before the storm of Queen Caroline, in a sense. Uh, there, by the way, there's Mike Lee uh, has a new movie of Peterloo coming out yeah. that uh, reiterates a sort of black legend of the oppressive government and persecuting people striving for political liberty. And so it's a very important story in, in Britain. Yeah. It's unknown in the United States. You better probably explain it it's, to us. Let me explain it. It's a very charged story. Uh, Peterloo was an incident that happened at St. Peter's Fields outside Manchester in uh, the late summer of 1819. And there had been a series of monster meetings, of very large public gatherings to agitate for parliamentary reform, changing the system of parliamentary uh, representation. And the agitation had been fueled by an economic downturn in spring 1818. A man by the name of Henry Hunt, Order Hunt, uh, against uh, the wishes of local magistrates, had addressed a crowd assembled in Peterloo, or not Peterloo, excuse me, in St. Peter's Fields outside Manchester to hear him argue the case for reform. And it was an uneasy time because uh, there had been other meetings that challenged the authority of Parliament. We're getting back to the question of Parliament's legitimacy. Mm -hmm. And uh, in Birmingham, in the city of, outside the city of Birmingham, a crowd had appointed a man, their legislatorial attorney, uh, giving them their authority to speak for them. Well, you couldn't nominate a member for Parliament or elect someone to Parliament without uh, the king's writ. So they're defying the crown and parliament, they're defying the constitution in a sense, and saying, well, the people are behind it. Local magistrates 
wanted to break up the meeting. And there's no police force as we understand the police force today. The army was um, was the troops would be called upon and sometimes militia troops, untrained local troops, to break up riots and disorder. That's the last resort uh, after reading the Riot Act and demanding that a crowd disperse. Well, the magistrates tried to read the Riot Act. They weren't overheard in a large crowd. Some people did hear them and tried to get away. Soldiers on horseback, the yeomanry cavalry who were not well trained, there were some regular cavalry that in present as well, they start to push the crowd. The crowd stampedes, people are killed in the process. And the result is presented as soldiers attacking the people. Wellington's victory at Peterloo over the French, now Waterloo, Waterloo over mm -hmm. the French, now Peterloo, the victory over the people of the army. And it's framed as the troops and the authorities against the people. It's a much more complicated story than that, but it marked a high point, and it was a point where the authority of local magistrates, local elites, the authority of the law itself, and of the government branded as oppressive. And uh, after that, a series of laws known as the Six Acts, rules that limited public assembly, that uh, limited training men, drilling men without, a, without the authority of magistrates, um, limited uh, stockpiling arms, weapons. Uh, it, was a, it was an effort to check. It also, limited, it also um, imposed fines and, uh, and uh, it, it imposed fines and also imposed limits or, or eased the prosecution of seditious pamphlets. It wasn't limiting the freedom of the press, but really enforcing existing laws. Liverpool said to Lord Grenville that this was to trying to bring, think, bring the state of meetings back to the way it was 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, mm -hmm. trying to limit the scale to prevent large assemblies that might spin out of control. Well, we won't. Um, these acts and other measures, uh, Liverpool surmounts this, um, this great crisis of parliamentary government. Um, and in many ways, it, it destroyed him. Uh, he dies of a well. He he suffers a series of strokes uh, and and is dead at in what eighteen twenty eight um, at the age of fifty eight. Yes. Um, so we want to get into the, the latter those last eight years of his life. But I'm curious as I as I study this man, uh, your book on a man whom I knew nothing about before I picked it up. Um, his ability to use. Um, politics to achieve um, his uh, use a variety of methods to achieve a very steady goal um, makes me wonder if you think there's any use in the distinction between politician and statesman. Um, certainly, if there is, then Liverpool does fall on the statesman uh, uh, side of the, of the equation, although I'm not sure how I could define that. Yes, yeah, statesman's a hard term to define. And the risk of an emphasis on statesmanship in a certain way is that it turns figures into uh, a marble man. Yep. You lose track of the individual. You lose track of the, uh, the decision-making process, yep. their perspective and mentality. And you also, you miss out on the flaws. And the, con yeah, and the, the context and the flaws, flaws, yeah. The context on the flaws. So that, there's a danger in emphasizing statesmanship. 
I think that there is much to be gained by looking at how people face problems mm -hmm. and face the cycle of problem solving. Uh, Liverpool, part of the reason for his early death is he started to run out of solutions to problems, even though he was exceptionally effective. And I would say he was a statesman. He, he, guided, Liber he guided Britain through not just the post-war transition, but dismantling the fiscal military state, uh, shifting England into a, uh, a lower tax and smaller government era and an era of free trade. Yeah. And also deflecting uh, deflecting uh, public discontent. We just talked about, just to say this quickly, we spoke about Peterloo, but over the last few years of his life, after 1822, there's really no unrest on that scale, mm -hmm. that he manages to, to meet public opinion, meet public agitation. And it's only after his death that you see another wave of instability. So I think that he, his achievement uh, is, part of his achievement is that reform later occurs as reform and not as revolution, that, that he gives the system resilience, but it allows itself to adapt and to transform uh, into a very different era. It, it is it is a very remarkable thing that this ardent defender of the 18th century constitution really brings the English government around into what could be called the 19th century constitution. And yes. First by changing the way that government operates from, as you said, that mercantilist military state into something different, very different. Um, a laissez-faire government perhaps, but also a much better managed one. Yeah, the one of the things that, that uh, I think is neglected in the story that I try to bring out in the book is the ex not just with Liverpool, but more generally, the, uh, the audit of war, the experience of, of winning the war, of, of managing administration and managing other things, that that provides, that raises the game of, of administration, of public figures, and that helps Britain adapt after the war. The people who won the war are the people who managed successfully the post-war transition. And the dismantling of that larger state, uh, Liverpool's project was to lower the burden on the mass of, mass of, the, of the populace while also encouraging economic growth so living standards would rise and that would remove discontent and it would make people satisfied with the 18th century constitution show that the government could reform itself and that could that it could govern well and he largely succeeded until the morning over breakfast when he um, had a stroke well i we're near the end of our last uh, five minutes or so of our conversation yeah. so I, at the beginning of this i twitted you um with um for writing a political biography um, which is, I, I know some of our colleagues perhaps a, a not, uh, probably a, a, a plurality, if not majority, um, might think uh, should be illegal. Uh, yeah. Historians should not write political biographies, um, and you should certainly have your membership in the AHA revoked. Um, what's your defense of writing political biography? Uh, and how does writing a political biography exemplify a, a sort of historical a means of thinking about the past? Well, there are a couple of things. Political biography provides a way to bring a lot of themes together. Uh, so they're not treated in isolation. Instead of looking at domestic policy, culture, uh, foreign policy, uh, financial management, administration, and uh, things like gender and sexual relations or, um, 
or society, you can pull those together because they tie in as part of episodes in a person's life, particularly a person who has a leading position in public affairs. So I think that it provides an organizing principle to, to look at things in a more holistic way. Uh, historians like John Eliot, uh, writing about the Count Duke Olivares in uh, 17th century Spain, or um, Jeffrey Parker on the uh, the grand strategy of Philip II, do this kind of thing very well. And it's what I've strived to do with Lord Liverpool. But if you look at uh, the volumes by Robert Caro and Lyndon Johnson, that's another model for biography, critical biography. Um, it's a way of looking at places and imposing order on what would otherwise be just a mass of episodes and information. And then the hard part, and I find this with Liverpool, is getting past uh, reputations, getting past the way generations and also uh, academic scholarship has come to frame periods. Mm -hmm. uh, Disraeli famously attacked Lord Liverpool, dismissed him as the arch mediocrity. <laughs> and of course, that was all done to bolster Liber Disraeli's own agenda. So you have to look beyond the immediate period and indeed multiple periods often. You have to see the past on its own terms and read the story forward instead of looking back at it. Uh, One of the hardest so parts a, of historical thinking is overcoming the ideas of other historians. Yes, yeah. and uh, that's true. It's interesting to think of Disraeli. Disraeli described bi biography as history without theory. Mm -hmm. And I here I will defend defend Israeli. I think he has a point with it. And it, it gives you a storyline. It gives you points of contact with important events, or even not such important events, but themes you can examine and discuss. And so it, it's, a, as I say, it's a holistic way of looking at the past, but you have to leap over the way successive generations framed an era and read the story forward to understand it on its own terms, to see how a person Liverpool, for example, in this case, uh, how they look at the world around them, how they understand it, often based upon their own personal experiences, but their own understanding of the past. What is that understanding that Liverpool or another person has? What does that mean for the way they act, the way they see the world, the way they live? My guest today has been William Anthony Hay. He is author of Lord Liverpool, A Political Life. Is this available in the U.S. now? Or is it it is, yes. It's uh, Boydell and Brewer. It's released from Boydell and Brewer. It's on Amazon.com. Uh, and uh, in fact, it's the price, is, the price dropped. It, <laughs> uh, it was released uh, for a little higher price uh, back in April, and now the publishers have lowered the price. So uh, get copies while you can. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, Will, thanks very much for being with us on Historically Thinking. Thank you. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runnat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 